Steph, we were uh, reading a psalm this Thursday for our prayer meeting. And at the end it said, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Um, and I just, I long for that in my life. Um, after 25 years of doing this, like, it, uh, it's just something I don't want to get so used to that I get flippant with and so familiar with that um, I don't realize that we're in the presence of God, number one. We're actually singing to not just a real person, we're singing to the supreme, almighty God of all gods, and he lets us into his throne room just to be close to him. As I was up here and we were just singing how great God is, aren't you glad that God is great when you're not that great? How many of you just, you're not that great most of the time? And I'm not talking, oh, I'm great. I'm just like, I'm not doing great, right? And I, I just felt, I talk, and anybody that's been here a long time just knows I'm not. I'm not cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and, uh, and I, I don't do weird things, but I just wonder if there's people in this room in an uninhibited way, even though it, it could be undue attention on you, but you are so desperate right now that you would just say, even into this service, like the songs, I'm here, I feel so empty. I need something to happen or else. I'm feeling weighted down. I do not feel joy. I feel soulless. I feel joyless. I just wonder if you would have the boldness just to even stand right now so I could just pray for you, even before the service gets started. And if your heart's pounding, that's probably you. Yeah, just stay standing. God, you know exactly who these people are. And just because we're in a big room with a lot of people, um, you just don't see all of us, you see each of us. I see everyone. You see every one. You know these people by name. You formed them in their mother's wombs. Every day of their life has been written in your book, as it says in Psalm 139. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I just want to pray for them. They had the courage to come today to this place. Maybe this is the last place they wanted to be, but the place they were tugged to today. And I pray that you would give them a special measure of your grace and strength. Right, people? Yes. Come on, Lord. Come on. Bring it on. We need you, God. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting on us? Are you waiting on us to want you? We want you. Yes, sir. Are you waiting on us to think 
We need you. We can't do it anymore. We need you. We can't do it anymore. I can't help all these people. But you are the shepherd of our souls. And you can help them. And we believe you for it. We trust that you want to fill their hearts today. Whatever questions they're asking themselves, I pray that you would answer those questions. If not today, in the the near future. Pour out your spirit into their life right now. Let them know that you love them. You haven't forgotten them. You have a plan for them. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and by his power. Amen. Amen. Can you just give it up for these people, their boldness to speak? This morning I'm speaking on joy. Aren't you happy about that? I didn't know that this was going to be a topic that was um, difficult for people to actually want to come to church to hear. I thought, this is exactly what people need. This is going to be so compelling, so attractive. People are just going to be coming out of the woodwork. They just want to hear optimism, positivity, something encouraging. They need joy. They need life. They need hope. They need a future. I sent out an email that you guys don't read anymore (laughs) because it's going to your spam box, but try to reverse that. Make me feel, at least pretend with me that it's important to you. I sent it out. Within 10 minutes, I got two replies that said, I'm not going to be at church this weekend because joy is a hard topic for me to hear right now. I only get that when it's Mother's Day and when we're speaking on marriage, which is just hard topics for people that have undergone difficulty in marriage or have gone through a miscarriage or they're going through infertility or whatever is going on and Mother's Day is just something that almost puts a knife in and twists it. Why would joy be something that if you interact with or hear that makes it feel like someone's sticking a dagger inside of you and twisting the knife? It made me really think about what's going on in our world that two people had the boldness to say, and they weren't, there was no animus, there was no anger. It's just, I can't, I can't do that. My heart cannot take a message on joy with the prospect that nothing will change in my life. So I've become addicted to misery and disappointment. And when I expect disappointment and I don't raise my hopes, then I don't expect anything and I'm doing a lot better than somebody giving me some idea that things could be better than they are only for them not to get any better. Is that, and am I, I don't know, just what I'm wondering. I do know like a lot of people just don't wanna be around happy people right now. And there's Proverbs on it. Don't sing songs to a person with a heavy heart. 
Just maybe that's what they're saying. Just, I don't need somebody to sing songs of joy and mirth and merriment when I've got a heavy heart right now. Maybe there's something like that and you're like, I'm just keeping it biblical. I cannot hear that today. One person said to me this week in a conversation, they said, joy is for children. They just don't know yet how screwed up everything is around them. I was like, that's an encouraging thought as I go into a message where I'm going to talk to adults about joy. Is joy just for children? Which then got me to think, is joy gone once innocence is gone? Once that innocence is gone, is there ever a shot at what we define as joy? Thankfully, I think joy is bigger than fun. I think joy is better than a good day. I think joy is actually different than happiness. Joy is rooted in something where you could actually be going through the hardest thing in your entire life that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy and you have an abiding, enduring joy deep down underneath while tears are flowing down your face. I uh, love to collect emails, conversations, messages, and texts. So anything that you send me, I keep those things. I'm a pastor. So I like to know the pulse of where people are at and keep those things. Kind of like a doctor. Aren't you glad that while you're saying, yeah, I've got a rash in my crotch. You know, it's like he, he, he asks you about that next time. Like, is that still there? Is that oozing still? Or should we get you some different medication, right? Or it could be something else, of course. That's just what came to my mind. You know, is that one rash still there? Are you still feeling that pain under your rib? They write these things down so they can come back around so they can treat the symptom. As a pastor, I try to actually get symptoms and write down positive things, negative things to get the pulse on the body because I'm a pastor, not a doctor. And so here are some things that you've been saying and some of you are in the room so you might recognize some of these things that you've said to me. I just want to get in the room before we get in the word. Someone said, you say there's so much to be thankful for, but that's easy for you to say, Jason. That's actually not easy for me to say. I've always been pretty optimistic about life, but I pretty much lost all hope in humanity. Things are falling apart so fast, it seems futile to try and hold them together anymore. That was a leader. Not a leader here at this church. Um, but I'm not going to lie to you. There are leaders in this church that have those sentiments along the last three years. You feel like you're sticking your pinky in the Hoover Dam that's about ready to bust, right? I've pretty much given up finding happiness at this point. I'm not getting married again. That conversation happened right there. And maybe if, I would just say, maybe if you're marrying for happiness, you might want to change your reason for getting married. Because my experience, well, my wife's here this morning, so I'll just, <clears throat> no. There, there's happiness, but I would say that there's meaning. There's a lot of holiness. 
there are some moments of, of sheer happiness, but I'll tell you, it's hard work to be married. <clears throat> and there's meaning in that. And our kids are a joy and a terror. But don't get married if you think it's just gonna take all your problems away and make you happy. So if you've been married once and you wanna get married again, maybe adjust your sails a little bit and think less about happiness and more about, God, I want a meaningful, substantial, consequential life. I want a joyful life. I love this one. Happy people kind of annoy me, honestly. It feels so fake, but maybe it's just me. It really is probably just you. Isn't it ironic that joy is actually frowned upon these days? It's so hard for me to see any good in this world anymore. I constantly feel heavy and sad. I feel you. My doctors told me for years I'm depressed and need medication. I finally caved and told him I have nothing left to lose, so why not? It's embarrassing. I don't know what your church background is and if there's been any stigma to going to the doctor and getting medication, you're in the wrong church. Over 10 years ago, this happened to me and I remember the embarrassment of it. And in many ways, it gave me breathing room to actually see the good in front of me and to carry on while I was leading this church. So I can tell you medication's not the complete answer, but it could be helping right now. We believe um, that God can heal us, but we also go to the doctor when we break our arms, have obnoxious acne all over our face, our teeth are crooked, and we want to get them straightened. We're not like, God, straighten my teeth. God, I have a pizza face. I need your help. It's like, God's like, go to the doctor. There's medicine for that. It's not just physical. It's mental. It's chemical. It's okay. It doesn't mean you don't trust God when you're on medication. Can I just say that? Can everybody else just tell everybody here struggling with that? This is just not, I don't know where we got this, but you don't trust God if you, le- no. But I'm, I'm getting off medication for the last two years. I was about benzos and Ambien and all these things. And I'm down to a half of a half of a half of what I've been on. And I'm taking a little half of Klonopin now. And uh, I'm almost there. And that's a sweet feeling. I used to look forward to things. I don't look forward to anything anymore. What's to look forward to? This stinks because this person had four kids. Anxiety has crowded out all peace. My kid asked me the other day, why are you so mad all the time? But I'm not as mad as I am sad. I feel like most days, what is the point of all this? If this is living, why be alive? I almost never laugh anymore. When I do, it's put on. My kids have drained me dry and I don't see any end in sight. My husband is no help either. I just feel like giving up. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but 
That's keeping it real. This person asked me, do you ever just want to go to heaven? I know that's probably not right for me to say, but this place doesn't feel like home anymore. But if you've read your Bible, there's passages that say, we are just strangers here in reverent fear. That's what Paul said. Actually, no, I think it was Peter. And it says, we are aliens and strangers walking. Why does it call us aliens and strangers in the text in Hebrews? Because there's a point where we know this world's broken and it doesn't feel like home. It certainly doesn't feel like Eden and we're not in heaven. So somewhere east of Eden and west of heaven, we find ourselves in this place and we're in a neither nor position. And I want you to know that Paul said, I long for your appearing. He actually said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that's, oh, is he being suicidal? No, he just knows this is hard and heavy down here. I cannot wait to be with Christ. But for me to live is going to be Christ if I'm down here. And if I die, it's going to be Christ. You can't kill me without it being Christ. And, and you can't keep me alive without it being Christ. No matter what happens, it's Christ. That's joy. I uh, was out playing basketball with my son Caleb a couple weeks ago. And we were p- playing around the world. I was just trying to teach him form and all this stuff. We were having a good time. This wasn't in a bad moment. And there are plenty of bad moments with my 10-year-old. But we were having fun. And he said, Dad, when you were my age, did you used to have fun? <laughs> I was a little taken aback because I was like, I think that's what we're doing right now. I th- at least that's what I thought we were doing. I said, why do you ask that? He says, I don't know. Sometimes it looks like dads ha- um, uh, it doesn't look like dads have as much fun as kids. I said, are you talking about me? He said, yeah, sometimes. Dad, when I'm older, will I still have fun? We we talk about the scourge of anxiety in our children, and I think they can tell from the adults around them that they're not sure if they want to go to the next level. They really like, in fact... I remember my daughter sometimes, especially Tay, she'd be like, if I could stay right here for the rest of my life, this is where I'd want to stay. Did any parents ever hear that? This is my favorite age. What they're saying is before this age, it wasn't as good. And by the looks of it after this age, it kind of sucks. But right here, it's really good. Dad, when I grow up, is there going to be any fun? And again, what we do as parents, we're like, Well, what you're going to have to do is redefine fun, right? You know, fun will be work, right? When he was asking me that, I just, I was thinking this week, nostalgia can be a mix between a bad memory and a good imagination for sure. But I go back to my childhood and some, some days I just wish I could go back when I didn't know any better. And just certain things that I did, and I did not know what I didn't know, and that was awesome. And it was naivety, but I'd take it any day of the week over the opposite of that, right? So I go back in time. One video that came to my mind is one that we captured off of a TV screen where my brother-in-law took a picture of my grandpa who died, I think, a little over 10 years ago when he was 94. (laughs) 
and uh, he was an immigrant from Spain. I look almost exactly like him at his age, so this is what I'm going to look like as your pastor in the years to come. But this is my grandpa talking about my sister's birthday and then talking about all of us grandkids, Tim and my sister Becca and Ange and myself. Listen to my grandpa. (laughs) Well, think nothing of it. I just had a birthday too, and it was a little older than that. A little bit older, but it's you. I can remember running after you when you were little, and you was you used to screech and holler and laugh and giggle, and it was a wonderful time of our life. And I just love you to death, all you kids. Always have, always will. Screeching and hollering and laughing and running and giggling. You remember those days? I was thinking of my grandpa. I pulled up a picture of my brother and I fishing with him. Look at him with a cigar in his mouth there, you know? (laughs) That was grandpa. He always smoked a cigar and then we'd be like, Grandpa, what are you doing? He's like, just trying to keep the bugs away. Trying to keep them bugs away. He'd do something. I remember one time we were fishing. We weren't catching a lot of fish. Finally, we got a sunfish and he caught it and put it in the bucket and threw the line back out. We got to the end of the day and the bucket was there. We couldn't wait to see all of our fish and there was only one fish floated to the top, the sunfish. And what we didn't know is grandpa never took the fish off the hook. He just kept throwing the fish in the water until he was dragging along the top. We thought we caught like 20 fish. It was one fish that he kept throwing back in the water and keeping it on the line. That's an idea. That's for free for you here if you're fishing. Think about when I was little on my dad's back like this. That's little JJ right there. That's my dad in his prime. That little boy didn't know what was going to hit him someday. Thought back to my wedding, one of the most awesome days of my life. That's my wife and I just laughing at our wedding. And then we had kids. And... uh, just kidding. But you, you go back to certain moments of your life and think, man, gosh, I wish I could go back. Did you know the Bible actually says something about that in Ecclesiastes? It says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. And do you know why? Because you can't go back. And if you keep thinking about going back, You'll never go forward. And joy pulls you into the future. Joy says, you know what? You're not going to be around very long. You got to make sure you're not just saying to yourself, oh, those were the good old days. No, these are the good days. Because in the old days, you were saying, can't wait for these days to be over most of the time too. And, and you're somewhat regretting the past and fretting the future, and, and that's not a great place to live. These stones of remembrance that we have, like those pictures, can become millstones of remembrance, pulling us down, pulling us back, 
drowning us. And your wife's like, where'd you go? Psalm 126, there's so many psalms of lament, tons of them, psalms, imprecatory psalms, but there are some songs of ascent and few songs uh, that are filled with joy. This is one in Psalm 126. I want to center on this, camp out a little bit, excavate this passage a little bit for us today. Ezra, they believe, is the one that wrote this, which is sort of odd. He was a priest. He came back with Nehemiah, who was a governor after the exile, and he was the one who rebuilt the temple. And then Nehemiah came back and they rebuilt the walls of Zion or Jerusalem after captivity. And this is what he wrote as they were coming off the heels of captivity. He said, when the Lord restored or brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among all the people around us, these nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Ah, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are stoked. We're pumped. We're filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. And then he takes a turn and he says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. That's the psalm. Israel in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, the city of David or Zion ransacked, broken down, temple destroyed, city destroyed, walls destroyed, home destroyed, families separated. They would leave the poor ones back and they took the more influential ones with them. Families are ripped apart. There's refugees, there's people staying behind. It's not awesome. You think three years of going through, it's hard. Imagine 70 years and trying to maintain hope. There's people who left for captivity that never came home. They died in exile. And so they come out of this, and this psalmist speaks of a time when they got their dreaming back. They got their laughter back. They got their joy back. They got their families back. They got their home back. They got their life back. Starts when the Lord restored the captive ones of Zion. We're like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. I wrote out just four things. Maybe you can relate to Israel and whatever exile you're in in your mind. Instead of restoration, a lot of us feel like we're in exile or captivity right now in our life. Maybe instead of dreaming, you're just existing and you're surviving right now. You're sucking wind, you're taking up space on the planet, but you're not advancing. There's no vision in your life. You can't see five feet in front of your face. There's no imagination for the future. It's just trying to survive and exist. And sometimes survival is success in certain seasons. Or maybe it's the loss of laughter in your life which to me comes from exhaustion 
and just overall serious, like this morose feeling, this malaise that covers your life and you're quiet and everything serious. Why so serious, right? That was the joker, by the way, right? Or maybe it's just loss of joy because life's been excruciating and devastating. Maybe that's you. There's too much bad news. How many of you have even thought or said in the last few years, I just need good news. Sometimes I don't even want to turn on the news because I just want to pretend like there's not more bad news. See, life in captivity, I was kind of sleuthing around and and doing some study on what were the conditions in captivity for the people of Israel. And they had all sorts of things that are said. I wanted to break it down into the vernacular of what you would maybe understand that they were going through. The first is their nation was torn apart. Do you feel like our nation's torn apart sometimes? I said, do you feel like our nation's just getting torn apart? And the problem is, is we don't need Babylon to come in and do it. We got Babylon inside of us ripping us apart. And it breaks my heart. There's no place to call home. You don't feel like you're at home on your own country some days. They lost their cultural identity or were told it was something else than what they thought it was. Their families were shattered and separated. They were mocked by the culture they were in. I'll show you that in a second. Their names, literally, when they would go into captivity, were often changed. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Can you imagine for 70 years losing your home, losing your identity, losing your traditions, losing your nation, losing your family, and then... Every day, someone calls you a different name than the name that you grew up with. They lost their national traditions, their religious traditions, Passover, Day of Atonement, feasts, festivals, gone. They felt constant restlessness. They pined for the past and they feared for their future. Those last two, I can feel that. It's interesting when I said they were mocked by culture, there's a Psalm, Psalm 137, that kind of gives us an inside look of what happened to the Israelites in Babylon. It said, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. We remembered Zion. There on the willows, we hung our harps. For there our captors requested a song. Our tormentors demanded songs of what? Joy. Sing us a song of Zion like you used to. And they said, how can we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? Don't you hate when you feel this pressure to be happy and you're just not? And they're demanding songs of joy and you're like, I know you're just missing something here. I can't sing that right now because that's not where I'm at. And what was really sad about this 
is the priests would go before the leaders, the Levites, and they had instruments and they could play those instruments that the leaders and the Levites got so forlorn, so crestfallen, so downtrodden, Jim Nora, don't you love that word downtrodden as they are? Downtrodden that the leaders hung their harps and said, we aren't singing anymore. No more music for us. Sometimes the only thing that held them together is that their leaders are like, we're gonna sing songs of old to remember and remind ourselves of the goodness of God. The leaders hung up their harps. You ever wanna hang it up? You ever just like, I'm hanging it up. Thousands of years ago, they just were like, I'm hanging it up. I can't do this anymore. They sat by, it's the Euphrates River, where these willows were. And I thought something was really cool as I was reading the commentary. These willows that they hung their harps on, they're called weeping willows. Anybody know what weeping willows are? They're not indigenous to this land. The scientific name for the weeping willow is Salix Babylonica. They actually come from Babylon. They were taken to different parts of the world and then they're planted. And guess where weeping willows thrive? Down in marshes and swamps, down by the rivers, if you ever notice where they are. There's some Jewish scholars who believe that this willow or poplar grew straight up and tall right to the day when the musicians of Israel started hanging their harps on the willows, causing them to weep themselves. And the exiles were weighed down by the sorrow while the willows weighed down by Israel's instruments of joy. They wept trees and priests alike by the Euphrates River longing for Zion. Wouldn't that just be so crazy if there was no such thing as a weeping willow until the day where the priests hung up their harps and the willows cried and the people cried. Salix Babylonica, weeping willows. And they were longing for Zion. Zion was the city of David. It was the fortress in old Jerusalem. And it was a fortress that they would feel protection in, security in, safety in. But it was also the presence of God. Zion would be like, the presence of God is with us. We feel his thick, tangible presence with us. But it was also home. It's what felt like home. There's no place like home, as Dorothy said. And they were like, we gotta go home. Zion's also a word for heaven. I cannot wait to get to Zion, to get to heaven. They longed for it. It said in Psalm 126, the Lord restored. He brought back dreaming, brought back laughter, brought back songs of joy. And I just had some questions for you. Where have you felt held captive with an exiled soul, a homeless feeling? Do you ever feel like you're losing hope and the ability to dream about a better future? When was the last time you really laughed because you felt free and alive? Like a belly laugh. How did your heart and home become so joyless of late, heavy and serious and quiet? 
See, when you're in exile and dreams and laughter and joy seem so far away, it's easy to feel dark thoughts capture your mind and hold you hostage. Thoughts like, I can't do this anymore. I feel trapped in life right now. What difference does it even make? Everything seems so hopeless. I can't take it another day. I cannot catch a break. Jesus, please come back. We're longing for Zion. We're longing for that fortress, that presence, that home. We're longing for heaven. Even as I was writing this, I just, there's something about it. And I know I might be getting old to you about my parents passing away this last year, but I just was hit in this moment. I just so long for home. A certain part of home is gone for me. A certain part of home I'm not at yet. I have a home between homes. I caught in a straight betwixt two. I just, such a longing for protection and the presence of God and home and heaven. Do you get what I'm talking about? And I just, I just wrote this. This is just my prayer. I long for Zion. I long to feel at home, to sense your protection, to feel your intimate presence. Break me out of my captivity. Restore my spirit. Give me dreams again, God. Give me hope for the future. Give me a vision that pulls me forward with passion. I want to smile again, Lord. I want to laugh again. I want to bring laughter to the places and people around me. Break the yoke of seriousness and heaviness and resurrect laughter in my life. And above all, restore the joy of my salvation. I want joy to flow from the deep wellspring of my soul. I want that joy to spill and splash over all those I lead and love. Loose the chains of my pity. Dispel the curse of my depression and anxiety hovering about me. Exercise every demon of anger and hate and fear that crush my spirit. And send your joy, Lord, all of it. I receive all of it today, God. I long for the Lion of Zion to restore all that the enemy has stolen, giving me back my true heart. I long for the lion of Zion to restore all that the enemy has stolen from me and to give me back my true heart. Who needs the lion of Zion here? (laughs) Some days it feels like hell is winning and heaven's losing. I'm just going to tell you. It's not true. I know the ending of the book. But we're not in that chapter. And I can't just rush there sometimes and just sort of take, you know, peace in that because I got to actually be in this world being salt and light and holding people together and being held together by people. I'm telling you, the lion of Zion sometimes sounds like a little kitty cat. That's the voice I hear. Oh God, what are you doing up in that tree? That's what it feels like. Where's the lion of Zion? Just wish I had a more masculine voice. That was a roar. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) My voice actually cracked. Did you hear that, Corbin? Uh, Goes on. (laughs) Oh, you'll give me my laugh back if I just keep doing that. 
says, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Whew. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we need other people to feel a restoration of joy. People are prompters, not the ones that Biden's reading, uh, by the way. <laughs> they can often see things... <laughs> Some of you are just getting that. Um, it's been funny for me. That's bought, brought my laughter back. <laughs> they can often see things in us before we see them in ourselves. Isn't this the truth? Somebody can tell us that God's doing great things in our life before we can tell ourselves God's doing great things in our life. And sometimes unless they tell us what God's doing in our lives, we can't recognize it for ourselves. And then sometimes they can actually tell me and I don't believe them. I, I'm in ministry largely because this one guy looked at my life and he said to this, to me, he was my dorm dad. You're good with people, Jay. You'd be a good pastor. I see that in you. Do you have people around you that see things in you? Do you ever go around and tell somebody, I see something in you? I see something in you. Never underestimate how powerful that is in people's lives to say, I see this in you. Because sometimes, unless you say you see it, they don't believe it's there. I would hazard a guess that so many of us here today are able to see the good, even the great things God's doing in other people's lives. Many of us even take the next step to tell the people around us how we see God at work in their lives and the great things that are evident to everyone but them. But we are slow in believing and receiving that affirmation for ourselves. For whatever reason, as difficult as it is to receive encouragement from others, and it can be difficult to receive, it is near impossible to take what they've declared and spoken it to us and to speak it aloud about ourselves to take that word of truth and to change the personal pronouns which help us personalize and internalize those realities. Joy requires us to say it to ourselves, to both let it in and to keep reminding ourselves of its truth, to keep it in after we've let it in. Yes. Amen. Do you see the shift in pronouns? God has done great things for them. God has done great things for us. Or somebody could say it in a more singular way. God has done great things in you. Will you ever say, God has done great things for me? He has. Did you know even when you're not doing great, God's great. When you're not doing good, God's doing good. Even when great and good things are not apparent to you, God's still doing great and good things around you. And sometimes you need community and then a reach of people around you to say, I see the things God's doing in your life that you don't. I need that. The, the phrase that came to my mind, and I'll have people say it to me sometimes, or I hear it in culture, you don't know how good you have it. And sometimes that's like something that wakes you up like, yeah, I don't know how good I have it. But sometimes that doesn't hit you. It just helps when somebody can say, man, 
let me tell you the great things that I see God doing in your life. But you have to receive it and say, God, you are doing great things in my life, even when I don't see it and I don't feel it. It doesn't mean it's not true and it's not real. God, you're good even when I'm not. Verse goes on. It says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. And if you're anything like me, you're like, like the streams in the Negev, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that would have been different than the river Euphrates. Euphrates comes from headwaters or a spring, and that actually flows year-round. The, the streams here of Negev only flow when there's a downpour. You can gradually be restored from captivity like earlier in the passage, but that's not enough not to stay filled with joy as the passage describes. There's a need for God to do more. The streams of Negev in the south flowed when the rain fell in faraway mountains. Those streams appeared suddenly and rushed with a mighty flow, sometimes known as flash floods. The psalmist prayed for a mighty sudden work of God to further the work of restoration among his people. We need this. Most of your restoration is going to happen incrementally, incrementally, not exponentially. Even captivity, they didn't get out of captivity all in one day. The king didn't wake up and say, get out of here, like it did with, with Pharaoh. And even if you look at the captivity of the Israelites in Egypt, they were there 400 years, and it took 10 plagues for him to finally let his people go. Getting out of captivity is a process. But what he's saying here, thanks for restoring us from captivity from Zion, Lord. But we need something more than that, God. If we're going to keep our laughter and our dreams and our joy to stay filled with that, we need you, God, sometimes to restore our fortunes like you restore the rivers and the streams of Negev. We need a downpour of God, a manifestation, an encounter with you, something miraculous, something out of nowhere that blows our minds and blows us away. Did you know you can pray for that? Not God, I just want to gradually over a long time be restored. God, I believe right now I can pray for you to encourage my heart and you can bring a downpour and it can create a river that just blows down through the mountains and it's like, God, there you are. You showed up and you showed off on my behalf to you be the glory. We need God to show up. The psalmist would say, it is time for you to act. Can you talk to God like that? He's like, please talk to me like I'm real. I want to actually answer more prayers than bless this food to my bodies and give me traveling mercies on the way home. Sick of these boring prayers. Cry out to a big God who can do big things. Downpour, God. Flash flood downpour. God. One commentator said this, there are a few transformations more dramatic than that of a dry gully turning into a torrent. Such can be the effect of a downpour, which can also turn the surrounding desert into a place of grass and flowers overnight. Such was the vision of the prophet speaking about how they longed for and needed God to show up. Goes on, pivots a little bit, but this is really important for us to have a biblical understanding of joy. 
It says, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Huh? That was Tim the Tool Man Taylor, by the way. <laughs> what is that have to do with the price of rice in Africa, right? What is, what? So bawling my eyes out and reaping joy? What are you talking about? Joy can never grow where there's an aversion toward avoidance of pain. We're not like talking about burying your head in the sand. Not, not joy. When you avoid the heavy, you avoid the holy. Joy is only as meaningful as your willingness to embrace sorrow. No tears, no joy. No tears, no joy. Galatians 6, 7, Paul said to the church in Galatia, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he will also reap. And in this passage, you sow tears, which means you want something, you long for something. There's a sign of life, the pilot light's still on. He's like, you gotta keep that pilot light on. Keep crying out to me. Keep, keep crying. Keep crying over your sorrow. Keep crying over your dreams. Please don't stop crying. Crying is an indication, not only a sign of life, but a heart that longs for God to do something. Amen. Don't hang up your harp. <clears throat> and you gotta sow to reap stuff. And typically you gotta sow something hard to reap something awesome. You gotta sow something awful to reap something awesome is another way of saying it. You gotta sow work to reap purpose. You gotta sow pain to reap growth. You sow sacrifice to reap transformation. You sow discipline to reap character. You sow intentionality to reap influence. You sow faithfulness to reap respect. You don't just get respect. You sow perseverance to reap success. You sow hard things to reap strength. You sow honesty in friendship to reap intimacy. You sow grief to reap healing. You sow tears to reap joy, God's joy. Yes. Without tears, you can have pleasure, but not joy. Pleasure is temporary. Joy is abiding. That is why hedonism is the quickest route to nihilism. Viktor Frankl said it this way. He was in the German concentration camp in the Holocaust as a Jew. He said, when a man can't find meaning in his life, he distracts himself with pleasure. I would put it this way. When a man can't find joy in his life, he distracts himself with pleasure. Is it working for you? He goes on, carries that thought and says, those who go out weeping just in case you didn't get it the first time I said it. Carrying seed to sow, return with songs of joy. Carrying sheaves with them. You don't carry seeds, you'll never carry sheaves. No reaping without weeping. Not the good kind anyway, not the meaningful variety that we're talking about here today. And I love the thought of seeds being connected to joy because I think a lot of times I think of the big things that bring me joy and God's like, it's gonna be the little things that bring you joy. Seeds are small and easy to overlook, but there are no sheaves without seeds. 
In a world that counts sheaves and not seeds, we can't keep demanding more out of life without sowing anything into it. Yelling at a field for not producing what was never planted is what our lives turn into. And I wanna be a seed sowing church more than a sheave counting church. I wanna celebrate seeds, small steps, small victories, small beginnings. This is the birth of joy in our midst when we can do this as a church for others and for ourselves. God has done great things. Okay, what about, he hadn't done great things. God's done good things. How about this one? God's done something. And I'm gonna praise him for that one thing, that one step, that one encouraging moment. And I'm gonna praise him and I'm gonna let that seed sink into the ground and start germinating and growing in my life. Because here's the thing, without seeds, there are no dreams. Without seeds, there's no laughter. And without seeds, there's no joy. I'm convinced of it. You gotta make room in your life to celebrate seeds. It's essentially like this passage is saying, no pain, no gain, right? God doesn't waste your pain. He doesn't waste your suffering. He will not waste your failure. He will not waste the depression you're going through. He will not waste that last disappointment. He doesn't waste that season of exile. So I was sent here today by God to say to your heart today, do not hang up your harp. Do not hang up your harp today. Your harvest is coming. So Man, wherever your harp goes, so goes your heart. And wherever your heart goes, so goes your harvest. Don't hang it up. And don't keep saying, well, those were the days. Those were the days. These are the days. These are the days. When you feel your spirit resign itself to, those were the days. Those were the days. Just let God transform it. These are the days. God has done great things for you. God has done great things for me. God's done great things for them. God's done great things for us. I wanted to leave you with this. Keep sowing seeds in your personal exile. That is the fertile ground of future joy. I hand this over to you, God. I pray that everyone would forget what you don't want them to remember and that you would remind them and bring afresh to their life what you never want them to forget. Allow your word to be the hammer that Jeremiah says it is, a hammer that breaks rocks to pieces. Help it to be a fire a fire shut up in our bones when we're weary of holding it in. Indeed, we cannot, as Jeremiah said. Pray that your word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, as it says in Psalm 119. Pray that your word will be sharper than any two-edged sword piercing between the marrow and the sinew, between our heart and our soul. Pierce us, Lord. Fillet us open, allow your word to plant seeds into the soil of our soul that end up germinating and growing fruit in the future. And for those here in a season of depression or oppression, God, I pray by your spirit that you would descend on them like a pterodactyl today. 
that you would descend on our town like a tornado and leave behind the evidence of your presence, that you would come like a flash flood today and that whelming flood would rush through our individual lives and our community and our church, God. We long for Zion. We long for you. We know you're doing great things. Give us the eyes to see. Widen our gaze. Lift up our, health, our head. From where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We root ourselves in you, God. You are our joy. You are our pride. You are our hope. You are our life. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength today. Let your joy seep into our life and become our strength today. I pray this, God, in your name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. amen. You're dismissed. Enjoy this wonderful day. I love you.